Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, our guests are Eric Portinger, the head of strategy, and Denis Ulas, the CEO of 1275 Collections, which is a new end to end solution for wine collecting. And today we're going to be digging into storage and provenance components of their business. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you. I was wondering if you could each give us a brief background on yourself and your experience in wine. Maybe we can start with you, Denis. Peter, Robert, thank you very much for hosting us today. As you can hear, I'm French. Grew up in the south of France, in the southwest, close to Bordeaux, and discovered wine when I was 17. I was doing some travel solo with my motorcycle. It was in 1987. Tells you about my age. And I was immediately impressed by the chateaus that I discovered, these centuries of history that were in front of me, the beauty of the region, and also in the wines, this attention to detail, and also the taste of the wines that immediately impressed me. At the time, there were very few 17-year-olds that were roaming around Bordeaux, so I was quite welcome in the chateaus. Eventually, when I left, I took a couple of bottles with me. The guy was quite impressed because I had quite a lot of luggage on my motorcycle, so he decided to give them to me. But he then asked me to not drink them for 10 years, at least. And I was looking at him and was like, what's wrong with you? I'm 17-year-old. You're giving me booze and you ask me not to drink it for 10 years. <laughs> it's impossible. I think that aside, my dad later on dug a cellar under a house and felt that he needed to start protecting all these bottles of wine that I was starting to buy more and more frantically. And that became a very special place to me. And is still to this day, it's really where I was banking plenty of happy moments for future redemption. And I really started to experience this concept of time, which I think is very important and very interlinked with wine. I think it's underplayed to a certain extent, but I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit later. I later went to study. I studied aeronautics. I went to MIT in the US, later went to live and, and work in, in Rome in Italy, where I was very happy to discover Tuscan wines, which were fantastic. It was in the mid-90s. I later got an MBA at Stanford and I started to work for McKinsey in London at the beginning of the new millennium. And I realized that, first of all, wine was going to be a career for me because I had a genuine passion. If there was one thing I learned at business school is that you should work where your passion is because the worst that can happen is that you live a happy life and eventually, possibly, you'll make a bit of money along the way. I also realized I had caught an entrepreneurial bug while I was at Stanford and I therefore founded my first business. It was called Clyde Club and it uh, saw the light of day in 2003. For many people, wine is a bit of an investment commodity, and I have a different take on it because for me, the world's greatest wines are miracles of nature. They combine this beauty that you have in nature and they mix it with the best of human skills. And the concept of Claret Club that I created in 2003 was centered around conviviality, and conviviality does need to play an essential role in wine because wine gets people together. And Claret Club was basically a private members club. We organized some great dinners with the world's most famous wineries. The winemakers or the owners was joining, and we had some great chefs as well that were cooking for us. It was a very professional organization. Every meal was rehearsed with the chef. So the chef would create a menu for the wines that we would give him. Usually it's the opposite. Usually it's the sommelier who tries to find wine for the meal you've selected. Here we were doing the opposite. And the business expanded in Geneva and became really known for it's uncompromising attention to detail because I organized almost 300 events. And all of them, I would say that the centerpiece for me was the respect of the great wines that I was interested by the estates. And so I felt that I really needed to put the right food and the right attention to all the details, whether it's the glasses, the temperature of service, the decanting times, so that everything was as perfect as possible. In doing those events, I was actually drinking some very special wines. I didn't fully realize until a certain time went by. 
But all those wines were coming from the chateau, so they were absolutely pristine, perfect condition. All of them were obviously genuine as well. Therefore, they represented really the purest expression of what they're meant to be. I also found out that there were a lot of other wines that you can find in the market that I had with friends or that I could buy for myself through different merchants. And when I was comparing those two, I felt that some wines in the secondary market were just the shadow, really, of what I was having when I was doing these events with the wines from the chateau. And that's where I realized that there were some blind spots and some gray areas, really, in this market. And that planted the seeds for what would become later, 1275, of which I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment. Yeah, discovering provenance at an early age in your collecting career is huge. Eric, if you could give a brief background of yourself and how you got into wine. Yeah, sure. From my side, I'd been interested in wine for a long time, but this really went up a notch in the late 90s. And I was a financial journalist at the time. I was at the Wall Street Journal in London. My day job was to write about banks and financial markets, which were pretty dry. But I was also given the freedom to explore and to write about personal passions. And the one that I chose was wine. And I think the great thing about being at a paper like the Wall Street Journal is the incredible access that it gives you. So I started traveling and meeting and interviewing winemakers to really try and immerse myself into their world. And the thing that really struck me was the simplicity and the unpretentiousness of the people I was meeting. I felt like they just wanted to do what was right. So not just to create great wine, but to get the most authentic experience from the land. And that really stayed with me even to this day. To give you an example, back in the early 2000s, I remember meeting Philippe Drouin, who is the winemaker at Joseph Drouin, the famous Burgundy estate. I was used to people selling themselves when I was a journalist and exaggerating their achievements, but he was the polar opposite of self-promotional. He was completely authentic. He couldn't really care less about what I thought or what I wrote. And I remember he answered one of my questions by saying that the estate had recently gone organic on most of its plots, but that they hadn't bothered to announce it. That surprised me because, you know, I was used to people wanting to promote these sorts of things. And I asked him why he was doing it then. And he just looked at me as if I was stupid and said, because it's the right thing to do. That really stuck with me. I think the second step for me was meeting Denis. He was just about to launch Clara Club in 2003. And I decided to go to the first event and write an article about it because it seemed different and interesting. And I'd been building my own personal collection of wines at this time, but I was on a journalist's income. And besides, they were all pretty young, so they weren't really ready to drink. So this was one of my first experiences with aged great Bordeaux, and it just blew me away completely. It was with Chateau Palmer, and the 83 and the 89 Palmers in particular were just transformative. People talk about their first wine epiphany, and that was it for me. I've always loved Palmer ever since. So anyway, while Denis was continuing with Claret Club, I went on to run external communications for Morgan Stanley in Europe and then for the Abu Dhabi government's wealth fund, Adia. But I was also building up my own cellar during this time and doing the same for some friends for drinking and for investing. Because the thing I'd noticed right back at the beginning was that these wines had a tendency to go up in value. And to me, it seemed like a much more interesting and fun way to make money than buying stocks. This is what Denis and I like to refer to as optionality. It's the flexibility of knowing that you can always decide in the future to drink or to sell at a profit, depending on your situation or your interests at that time. Awesome. 1275 was only founded in 2019. Can you give our listeners a brief overview of 1275 collections and why you founded it? Yeah, sure. For me, wine is happiness in a bottle. And collecting wine is like banking, investing or preparing, anticipating, if you wish, happy moments in the future. And because of my experience with Clyde Club, drinking all these great extra two wines and living the full range of emotions when growing through these pristine bottles 
And then making also the sad observation that some of the same wines from the secondary markets were unfortunately somewhat wasted or at least adulterated when I was drinking them elsewhere. I realized how lucky I had been. I really decided to do something about it because the wines, when you have them in their purest expression, are just worth it. And so I wanted to give collectors, the more discerning collectors, the true wine lovers, those who actually do want to enjoy the wines eventually at some point, the possibility to give them a way to also experience the same great wines as I did. So I created 1275. To put it simply, we built fully documented, fully traceable collections of pristine bottles from the world's most iconic estates of today. We are Swiss-based. We source wine directly from the estates, thereby avoiding all the issues with fakes and damaged wines. I'm also an engineer at heart and by training, as I said earlier. So we use a very healthy amount of technology to not only document, but also prove that every step of the way has been done in a certain way and we prove it and we have the data to prove it. It's always struck me that all these great wines are receiving an incredible attention to detail at every stage of the making. There's massive investments that are made in the wineries, in the vineyards, and lots of knowledge that has been accumulated through generations in how to make the wines. And eventually, you have everything that comes into this very precious, unique, and somewhat transient bottle of wine that encapsulates all that. That's all the things that I personally find the most magical about wines. And all of this is being put at risk. So it's like if you think of a Picasso painting, a beautiful painting somewhere, but then asking the local builder to drop it at a gallery in Paris alongside a huge pile of bricks. It just makes no sense that you would take these risks for such precious assets. I realized that it was also a huge issue potentially for winemakers because the last person who buys the bottles and pay the top dollars to actually experience this wine just cannot be disappointed because it's someone that truly loves wine and wants to have the full experience. It's unbearable to think that it's been damaged somewhere along the chain by someone or something that we don't know about. It's terrible for the estates because the final drinker will believe that it's actually the wine that is not that great or the estates that does not merit the status when some of the times it could just be a truck that was sitting in the wrong parking lot for too long and it goes completely unnoticed and unmonitored. So I think that the estates ought to take this very seriously because it potentially can erode their reputations. I would say also that the final customer also wants this issue to be sorted because for him or her, it's a tragedy. They have spent all this money for this very special experience. Sometimes they even go through the trouble of storing this bottle of wine or these bottles of wine for decades, only to find that it has been damaged before they actually even bought it. And so why do you want to take this chance? Because the experiences that you're going to create when you open a great bottle of wine with friends, you can't buy back. You can't get back in time. So let's not take chances. And that's really the, the fundamental reason for 1235. I think there's just one thing I'd add to that. I think we call this the biggest dirty secret in the industry because nobody really wants to talk about it. You'll hear a lot of people in the trade saying that they check the provenance of their wines very carefully. But the problem is if you scratch beneath the surface, these statements are almost meaningless. Do they know where the wine has been from day one? Do they know how many owners it's had or how many times it's been moved around or what conditions it's been exposed to? And almost without exception, I would say the answer is no. Because if they did, why not prove it with a paper trail and with data? I think the fear that a lot of people in the trade have is that buyers will actually start asking for these things because the cost of that would be enormous. The only thing you're probably going to hear is, don't worry, the wine's in great condition or what's the problem? It's always been done this way. I think when Denis and I first started talking, we quickly boiled it down to a single issue, which was respect. We felt that these wines, their creators and the people who had bought them deserved more respect than they were actually getting at that time from the market. 
So that was our starting point. How can we create a solution that treats these wines and all the people connected with them with the respect that they actually deserve? For older wines, they have a history. There's not anything you could really do about it, I guess, if you're in the trade, right? In terms of what they could do now. No, exactly. And so it sounds like, just to repeat, your solution is about buying direct from the winery and then storing it effectively. So you have that whole chain done. But then I think there's a little bit more to that, right? You mentioned there is a decent bit of technology and data wrapped around that. How does that show up in your solution for your clients? Yes. So basically, as Eric was saying, this notion of respect is at the core of our DNA. But as an engineer, I know that there is technology that today exists and they're becoming widely available to fix these issues. So we can use it and we do use it. But our ambition is not going to be to change the industry as a whole because it would take too much time. It would be too complicated and it would be too costly. So what we want to do is to create an ecosystem that offers an immediate solution for the most discerning and the most demanding collectors. So first, what we do is that we purchase all of our wines directly from the source at the estates or at the négociant that can vouch for an extra to provenance. We then equip all our bottles and all our wine cases with NFC chips to create unique digital identities. Our chips are credit card grade chips, so they are the highest security. They're protected against tampering, against fraud. And what we then do is to monitor every movement of all these bottles and cases along the supply chain. So from the moment they are handed over to us, we track the temperature, the humidity, the location of all stock in real time. We then receive our wine in the Swiss facility that we have. We have a dedicated room in the Freeport of Geneva, which is ultra qualitative, which we have fitted to our own specifications, which is obviously also ultra secure. The Freeport of Geneva holds also a lot of art and other things. And finally, we have our own proprietary mobile app, which shows the full history of each bottle and each case that we have in custody. And through this app, we document and we show the source and the whereabouts of every item in our ecosystem, as well as the real-time temperature and humidity that we have in the storage chamber itself. And so we call this whole process our Internet of Bottles, which is a term that we have coined and trademarked. As an anecdote, actually, we had a multinational liquor company that recently tried to use the term. It was on their website because they liked it, rightly so. So we have politely asked them to take it down, and to their credit, uh, they immediately did. Just a quick clarification for listeners who may not know. So the Freeport of Geneva is going to be very similar to having bottles stored in bond in the UK. It's basically outside of taxes. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Freeport is basically a place can be located into any geographical place, but it's outside of the jurisdiction of that particular place. You don't pay any duties or any VAT, whilst the goods could be wine, but it could be jewelry, could be art, vintage cars, while they're still there. You don't have access to it in the sense you can go and look at it, but you can't actually enjoy it. So you can't open your bottle of wine and drink it when it's under bond. But you then pay the taxes and the duties wherever you repatriate and eventually want to consume the wine. Perfect. The reason why it was so important for us to create our own ecosystem is because the fine wine supply chain is incredibly complex. So you have a lot of intermediaries who've carved out roles for themselves over decades. And then you have the whole transportation process. And, you know, there are hundreds of vehicles moving within and across countries to different destinations. They're loading, they're offloading into temporary warehouses or they're standing in loading bays. And then they're being reloaded again and moved on further. In fact, the truth is that most wine isn't even treated with the same care you'd give to fresh produce. They're handled more or less like other freight goods. In most cases, without temperature controls and virtually zero monitoring, often the best you're going to get is an insulated blanket over the pallet to try and keep it a bit cooler. You know, this means there's just no way of knowing where they've been or what temperatures they've been exposed to. 
I think the really great paradox right now is that fine wine prices are at record levels, which means you would expect them to be handled incredibly carefully, more than in the past. But actually, the opposite is actually happening. They're being moved around more than at any point in history. You know, if you go back a few decades, people would buy these wines, and then in most cases, they'd forget about them in their cellars until they were ready to drink. Now, the most famous wines and, you know, expensive wines have become alternative investments. So they're being traded and then constantly moved back and forth between different warehouses and owners. And every time that happens, they're being put at risk. To give you just one example, one of the top UK bonded warehouses, and I won't name them, but, you know, for fine wine, they say on their website that they have 300 trucks on the road on any given day. That's an incredible amount of wine that's being moved by just one warehouse in one country. But the website says nothing anywhere about temperature controls or monitoring or anything like that. So you can draw your own conclusions about what's happening. That's why we decided when we were creating 1275 that we had to develop you know, our own end-to-end process where we would control and monitor every step ourselves. So in terms of talking about the ecosystem, two of the main components that you guys have both highlighted just now are provenance and provenance can mean a lot of things, not just whether or not the wine is legitimate or not, but also its conditions and keeping it like how is it cared for in its journey and its life so far. In episode 33, we've talked with Maureen Downey of Chai Vault, and she was saying that on the legitimacy of the wine that their experts say, Interpol says that roughly 20% of all wine is counterfeit. And I was curious, counterfeit and non-counterfeit, what is your definition of provenance and what does good look like for provenance for 1275? Some people think provenance is just about knowing that your wine isn't fake, but you know, it's much broader than that. It's also about how many hands it's passed through, how often it's been moved, the conditions it's been exposed to during that time. Basically, it's the entire life of the wine. But the reason we focused on provenance was twofold. Firstly, because it's the right thing to do. But then also because it's the future. If you look at what's happening with other markets, it's easy to see the direction that we're heading in. And to give you an example of that in the luxury industry, traceability has become one of the biggest themes of the past couple of years. The global luxury brand, LVMH, last year they created a traceability platform called Aura. And there are a number of other brands that have signed up to that. And essentially, it's a way to certify the authenticity of a product and to build a connection with buyers. But also within wine itself, it's becoming obvious that people care more than they did in the past. The prices you know, have soared, as everyone has seen, so it matters more. And there's also a lot of anecdotal evidence. So for example, one of the sellers in the UK, Octavian Vaults, they're one of the largest, they say the requests for photos of cases and bottles have increased by around 30% every year for the past few years. So this is one of the few ways that people can check the condition of a wine before they buy it. And that tells you that it's becoming more of a focus for people. And then, of course, is the fact that people are starting to pay big premiums for wine that are released late by chateaus because they know they've been handled perfectly. What I'm saying is we know it's coming, but even more than that, it has to come because prices can't keep rising endlessly without it. And as more wines start to have traceable provenance, it makes those without it look less attractive. So we think there's going to be a tipping point where people will start demanding fully traceable stock or at least ask for more documentation on past owners. I don't know how quickly that's going to come, but I think the question that people need to ask themselves is, you know, do I want to have a collection of $100,000 or $200,000 worth of wine now and then discover in 10 years' time that it's considered second-class stock and it's difficult to sell? We've definitely seen with our variety of interviews with wine auction houses that ex-chateau auctions go for a drastic premium over personal collection auctions. And so it's clearly there at the very highest level. What are some of the main ways that people 
and the wine business ensure that provenance is for their wine today? And is it the same at all levels of wine? And clearly you guys are focusing on the upper level and so is the auction space. So I'm just curious on at what price point or what type of consumer actually really needs to solve this problem? Well, I think at the level of the people, what you need to do is you need to ask all the possible questions you can ask about a wine's history. And you need to assess the quality of the answers that you're getting. You need to request photos, and when possible, you need to buy directly from the chateau. At least you need to buy from a reliable source that is long established with a solid reputation. And it's probably not a very good idea to go to the cheapest offer. I very much enjoyed the episode with Maureen, and I had a chance to talk to her last time she was in London. I mean, yes, what you mentioned, this 20% of fakes is probably a good number, even though it's a numbers and statistics can be catchy. But there are incentives to create one more fakes. And the more expensive the wines will become, the higher the incentives will be. If you think of a wine that's being traded, moved between warehouses 50 times, effectively, it's treated exactly in the same way than a wine that has been bought on Primer and stored into one single warehouse. They both look the same. And the problem is that there's no way to distinguish between the two and everything is based on trust. So your information is bound to be incomplete. You can look at a photo as much as you want. It doesn't tell you the condition of the wine inside the bottle. Even if you buy something that's ex-chateau, what do you know about the transport that the wine has experienced between the last few months? I mean, do you have the data on that? People need to ask for data. They need to demand a bit more rigor for their wines. Now, the level of wine businesses is a different story because there are different people with different stakes on it. There are many different types of business. You have the winemakers, you have the importers, the merchant, the auction houses. Each have different interests, each have different incentives when it comes to provenance. And even within one category, you can have differences. For instance, it's a bit hard to generalize, but if you take a smaller family-run winery, to us, they seem to often care a lot more about how their wines are being handled than bigger businesses that are owned by large companies that are big brands. For many, it's just a question of cost versus return. And it's sometimes easier for the larger estates and cheaper not to get involved with these issues. If a wine gets cooked into a loading bay for a few hours at 35 degrees Celsius, how are you going to determine the damage that has been done? And even if you do determine how much damage has been done, who's going to absorb the cost? Is it going to be the chateau? Is it going to be the importer? the transport company, the insurance, or the consumer. It's really a headache, frankly. Just to add to that, because I know you asked about this in terms of different solutions in the market, I think there are different traceability solutions that are emerging. These tend to fall into a couple of broad categories. These are the ones for the industry, for the trade itself. The first is pure tracking, like what the luxury industry is doing, so that you know that your wine came from a specific estate, you know that it's not fake. But the more comprehensive approach is a combination of tracking and condition monitoring, so that you can also tell what temperature, humidity, and vibrations your wines were exposed to. And this is really the standard that we think everyone should be aiming for, but it's harder. One example of the latter is a company called eProvenance. They're sort of US-French company, essentially B2B business with services that wineries and importers can sign up to. And one of the things they do is they offer point-to-point tracking and monitoring of wines from a specific state to an importer. And I think it's great because it gives both parties visibility on where the problems exist in their unique supply chain. And it means they can try to fix those problems. So the end result should be fewer cooked or damaged wines, which their clients will benefit from. But I think the only issue is that this data isn't being shared with consumers. So without that transparency, buyers still need to trust the people they're buying from. And so we're back to where we started. And I think also the adoption rate by the trade is still very patchy. The percentage of wines that are tracked in this way is minuscule compared to the huge amount of wine out there in the market. So that's why we felt it made sense to start from the other end, the collectors. 
That's an interesting question. Obviously, we have that data point from Marina on what percentage of wine in the world are counterfeit, but I'm curious on what percentage we think, maybe even just for fine wine, is mishandled, essentially not handled correctly. Is there anybody that has an estimate on that number? Because it seems like it's a scary number to potentially look at. Yes, I think it's a very scary number to look at. I think 20% of fake wine is reasonable, is probably wrong, as most of these numbers are. But yes, you have Interpol and it's a luxury good, so you can do a lot of inferences. And I think that the ballpark figure is probably there. Wines that are being damaged in storage, in transport, is very, very difficult to assess because nobody has any interest in this number to come out. We believe that the counterfeit issue is the tip of the iceberg and that wine damage is a much bigger issue. First of all, because it's very difficult to assess, but it's also very difficult to address and to do something about it. And it happens much more often. So if you think 20, 25% is fake, then I would say probably more than half is damaged to a certain degree. It's also potentially easy to spot a fake, right? We've all sorts of technology, but there's no way you can tell whether the wine is cooked before being the bottle. And in the end, this wine is food, right? It's very sensitive to heat, it's very sensitive to light and to all the handling in general. So yes, people should pay attention to these things, especially given the amounts that they spend on these wines and also the fact that eventually they will put some of it through their bodies. For me, it seems counterfeit binary. It's either real or it's not, but it's a spectrum or, or subjective to some extent if a wine is then treated properly or handled properly over time. So you mentioned that wines from the Ex Chateau, which is how we derived our name in the podcast, is sold for more is worth more than wines from the secondary market. Do you have a sense of what people are willing to pay or what kind of premiums people get for wines that have maybe not even been Ex Chateau, but have been stored properly and have proof of this provenance? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it goes to what Robert was saying a bit earlier. Obviously, you have these sales of Ex Chateau wines sometimes that are being done and that basically goes to stratospheric prices. I mean, the most famous one was these two bottles of Romane Conti from 1945 that were coming from the sellers of Drouin. So it had impeccable provenance that went for more than half a million dollars. But look, historically, if you look in the market, the premiums that are attached to Ex Chateau have actually been ridiculously low. And it's actually something that didn't make any sense. I couldn't get my head around it for years. I remember 15, 20 years ago when I was in London, I was looking on wine list and you had the same case of wine that was ex chateau and not ex chateau. And maybe you had two, 3% difference. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So the only reason I came up with is the fact that most of these wines are actually being bought by traders and are being resold to traders. And traders work on very tiny margins and they don't really care where it's coming from and where it's going to. They just want to maximize their margin, right? And if they are buying wine with ex-provenance status, what happens is that they put these cases on top of the other cases that they might already have of the same one that is not ex-chateau provenance. And the problem is that in this warehouse, the traceability is effectively being lost at this point onwards. So there's very little benefit to them to pay this premium for ex-chateau. But thankfully, we've seen this premium increase over time, not only in, obviously in, in these auctions, but also at the level of the chateau, because the chateau have been since 2000, holding back a lot more stock. And they're really hoping to sell them later with larger premiums. And what they also hope to do is to shorten their supply chain because they want to aim more directly at the final customers. So it's our belief really that those premiums will keep increasing at this trend to shorten the distribution channel and to remove all these intermediaries who don't always add much value and for some of them actually increase the amount of risks that you take with the wine will grow. And in fact, 
our view is that there will eventually be a two-tier system that will emerge over time. For the wines that have the documented provenance, like direct sales from estates or collections, such as the one that we built with 1225, because we effectively keep the ex-chateau status ex-chateau over time. And then it will be all the rest in the secondary market. And those two tiers will be built. I think the point that Denis was making there was he was talking about ex-chateau provenance wine. There's also the vast majority of wine that's in the market. And how do you differentiate between the provenance of those wines? And the truth is that right now there is no real differentiation between them because once they enter the secondary market, they're effectively all equal unless they have visible flaws. So if you're looking at wine that has damaged labels or damaged fill levels or whatever, you're talking about a different category of wine. But for the most part, the market generally won't pay much of a premium for wines that fall into that category. So does that mean for twelve seventy five, you're only buying directly from the winery or Negotian and you don't buy anything off the secondary market? Absolutely, Peter. We only buy from the source through our many direct allocations from all the world's greatest states that we've built over the years. To name just one, because it's public information, we are one of the ambassadors of Chateau Lafleur one of the most famous and revered names in Bordeaux. It's a wine that I've been following through the years and the family that's at the helm of this estate really know what they're doing, both in the cellar and outside of the cellars. And they have been going from strength to strength. But we also work with most of the top names from France, Italy, Spain, the US and beyond. That reflects that we've built relationship with all these estates over extended periods of time. And these rewards our attention to detail. And really what I think they do is to recognize our philosophy around the care and the respect that we have for their wines and the wineries that we partner with. And the message seems to be resonating because we've been adding more states all the time. I think that they realize that we will offer them not only a shorter distribution, but also a proximity to their end customers, whether they're drinkers or collectors alike, and we're also fully accountable to them and to their wines. And so do they also give you access to some of their back vintages or their library wine, or is it only new releases? No, absolutely. And we do ask for back vintages for us. Obviously, it's important to be able to have some of those. But as you know, a lot of these chateaus have been depleted of back vintages over the recent past. People eventually realized that mature wines taste a bit better than very young wines. They do give us access to some of the older vintages also because they know that we are going to be treating these wines the way they would want these wines to be treated. So for them, both the proximity to the end customers, but also all the care and attention that we take throughout the chain is very important. And so once one of your customers either takes delivery or sells the wine, do you continue to track it? Do you continue to get the temperature data from the RFID? And is that data per bottle or is it per case? The data is kept at both bottle and case in a database, but we can only track it and provide a guarantee so long as the wine remain in our custody. Because we can provide a, a full guarantee also to future owners that it was in perfect condition until it was transferred to them, which is actually a tangible benefit for trading amongst them. But from the date that it lands into private hands and it leaves our warehouse, then we cannot certify anything because we then lose the control. What we do is that we keep the information on the bottle and with all the chips that are either on the bottle and on the cases, but this information will tell you what's happened until that very day where actually it left our ecosystem. And does the data start when it arrives at your warehouse or does it start in the winery? Because there's still the transport, right, from the winery to your warehouse? No, no, we start recording everything from the very moment that we get hold of the wine. So it's at the level of the winery. And then we record everything throughout transport when it gets loaded into the loading bay and then all the way down to our facility. So we leave nothing to chance. 
clearly storage conditions have huge impacts in terms of how quickly or even how well a wine matures over time. You've collaborated with researchers on this topic and reviewed many studies, I think 50 plus. I'm curious at a high level, what are some of your takeaways or findings around wine storage? I think, first of all, just to clarify, I mean, there's been very little external research done on storage itself. It's kind of interesting given how important it is. So the scientific research we looked at was primarily focused on transportation and the effect of transportation on fine wine. And that was incredibly conclusive that moving wine around in vehicles that are not temperature controlled causes chemical changes that makes them age prematurely at best and cook at worst. Road transportation was the worst, interestingly. It was actually worse than shipping containers. And given that most wine is transported by road, that's not great. But I'll let Denis answer the question about storage because he's a storage guru. <laughs> yes, to add to what Eric just said, storage. And, but I would actually also include transport. First of all, it's probably one of the least sexy topics that you can talk about. And I would highly recommend it not to talk about that at cocktails. It doesn't get you anywhere. Nevertheless, it's amongst the most important topics when you talk about fine wine, because it's crucial for the wine that enjoys so much time in waiting. It's this whole alchemy of aging that happens during storage, and you can't leave that to chance. The problem today is that most of what happens there is undocumented. What we all want is a wine that will be perfectly mature. With all this complexity of chemical reaction that takes place into the liquid medium, These are basically nanograms of different chemical compounds that interact with each other, where temperature and a lot of other things are very important. As the wine evolves, one needs to make sure that everything has been looked after as properly as possible. When I was actually fundraising for this business, I took the freedom to travel around the world to visit all the storage facilities and see what was a bit the lay of the land at the time. It was obviously pre-COVID. What I found was actually interesting because There was a lot of variability, but there was a consistent lack of transparency and accountability. And that really bothered me because I'm an engineer. I really believe in accountability, especially when it has to do with something that is so thermosensitive and valuable as wine. So over the years, I've spoken to countless winemakers who also were furious when in summer they see these trucks of wine on which they have invested so much of their passion and their know-how leave their estate in the middle of summer in trucks that are completely unprotected and without any control of temperature. Because you can say on one hand, it's not their responsibility because their responsibility is to make great wines. But on the other, it's their name on the label for the final drinker. So they need to make sure that what happens in storage really is proper. So if you had to boil down wine storage to a couple key KPIs, things that you need to track for best in class, what would those key elements be? Lay out like a blueprint of what needs to be tracked. What would those be? Sure. Look, I mean, first of all, and and foremost, temperature is essential because this commands the speed at which all these chemical reactions where nanograms are at stake evolve. But temperature fluctuations are also very important because what temperature fluctuations do is that they create micro variation in the pressure inside the bottle. So stress on the cork and that can lead to little channels and potentially seepage. It's even more important with all the wines, actually, because the corks have then lost a bit of their elasticity. The second one, obviously, that comes to mind is the humidity. It's very important because it keeps the wine cork from drying. But the storage system itself is also critical when you think of humidity, because you want to have a thermal inertia so that your storage system has a good density of wine in storage, and you don't want this inertia to be creating mold either. So you need to have a circulation of air within the storage area. So that's why there's a fine balance to create a high density that will limit the fluctuation of temperature, but not too much that you are then going to have pockets of dead air. But I would argue that, and that would be my third one, the most overlooked 
probably the most critical element of wine storage is the lack of contaminant. If you take your cellar 101 book, what does it say? It says it needs to be dark, it needs to be cool, it needs to be humid and free of bad smell. That's sort of the first one. There's plenty of others, but these are the first one that basically come to mind. And this bad smell is fundamental. Why? Because it, it does actually get into the wine and it's very difficult to detect but there are contaminants in the ambient air around wine cases when they are in storage that can make a huge difference because they will eventually go through the cork and taint your wine. This is why in our storage facility, a very special machine has been developed by a French lab. She's based in Burgundy and it contains half a ton of active charcoal and purifies the air on a regular basis. And it goes alongside the regular analysis of ambient air in the storage chamber. So what are these chemicals? Some wineries don't want to have cardboard in the winery because there's TCA precursors that could get into the wine. Are there others that you're trying to filter out? The main one is actually TCA because it's the one that has the most impact with the lowest concentration. So it's extremely difficult to detect. It comes as a byproduct of chlorine and so it's very easy to find. I know this laboratory with which we've worked, they just built a winery in Bordeaux well, the winery was built in Bordeaux and they used a bit of bleach to clean the winery before starting the winery. And they had wood frames and wood pieces and the wood picked up the chlorine. And they had to actually knock down the whole winery because of this use of chlorine. It's really the main one. There are others, but it's the main one that we look for. Are there a lot of cases of TCA transferring through the cork? I know that there's in the winery, it can happen and contaminate the wine. I'm just curious in terms of like actual storage that this bottle next to this bottle is actually contaminated. Are there proven a lot of cases there that that's a connection? Because it seems like that would be more difficult than like a wider, broader contamination at a winery. What can happen is between a case or a pallet and a wine. So that's why we don't store any carton in our facility and all our pallets are brand new and they have this heat treatment called NMIP15. It's very important to not have any contaminants in the pallet. I remember a discussion with one of the famous right bank winemaker in Bordeaux telling me about this couple of cases of wine that had been sitting on a pallet in a private cellar and the pallet was actually dirty. It was contaminating with TCA and this person is actually extremely sensitive to TCA because we're not equal against TCA. Some people don't have a very low threshold of a detection, but this person has. And actually every bottle that was coming out of the case was TCA tainted. And eventually at some point, you know, you have the first bottle, you have the second, you have the third and you're thinking, okay, something is going on. It can't be all the corks. So she went down into the cellar and eventually realized that it was actually the pallet on which the case had been sitting for maybe a couple of years that had tainted all the bottles inside the case. So yes, it can permeate from... I don't think it can go from the medium, from the wine. So if you have a TCA tainting bottle, I don't think it can contaminate another bottle because it would have to go through the cork into the other bottle. So that would be a too small a quantity. Yeah. But uh, from a case or a pallet into a bottle, yes. From a large source down to a smaller one. This is bad for me considering I still have Wood and cardboard in my cellar. <laughs> but it's also most wineries, when they bottle, it goes back into cardboard boxes and cases into chateau, if you want to call it, or winery storage. Wouldn't that be a big problem then? Well, actually, when they store in Bordeaux in particular, where they store massive quantities of wine, as you know, they store them as they call it in tire boucher. So it's actually just the glass, the wine and the cork. So there's no label, it's metallic cages, and there's no wood, there's nothing else. And that's a good way to prevent anything. But after that, they put into wood and not cardboard. Because the contaminant being this big problem, and that's why we've teamed up with this lab in Burgundy, they use mass spectroscopy equipment to analyze. They analyze the soil when they have 
soil contamination sometimes in estates or the liquid. So they analyze the water or the wine in different wineries, but also gas medium in order to chase the contaminants. And for top wineries, these contaminants are a big danger because when you do wine at a certain level, it's basically just chasing anything that could come on the way of the fruit and the way of the pure expression that you're trying to express in your wines. So before we approached them, they actually had not worked with any storage facility before, yet there is the scientific evidence that the quality of the wine will be affected by volatile elements. And again, as Eric was saying earlier, there's not much research that's been done into this second life of the wine bottle, as I like to call it, which is the long-term storage of the wine. But there is plenty of empirical evidence that it happens. And we're working actually with this lab and with some PhD to actually build a bit more knowledge around that. Again, nobody's interested in talking about it, but that's what happens when you don't have a relentless attention to detail. And my conviction is that the great wines that we are producing today, their unprecedented quality and incredible efforts and investment that go into making them fully deserve this attention and will pay hefty rewards in the future, especially if you want to drink the wines. So what's the 1275 business model? Are you a retailer and storage company? Are you like a wine investment company and you help people decide which wines to invest in? How does your business work? We're not a wine merchant and we're not a storage company either. We're also not a pure wine investment company. People who are hoping to make a quick buck with wine should probably look somewhere else. What we are is an end-to-end solution for people who want to build a great wine collection and who want to do it properly. What differentiates us is the fact that we source wine directly from the States, so we can be absolutely sure of their provenance, and that we are a technology company, and that we own and that we deploy our traceability solution. So we have a very personalized approach in how we build the collection that starts with the collector, not with any wines that we might have for sale. So our job is to understand what our clients' objectives and motivations are for building a collection, how much is for drinking, for drinking when, how much of it is for investment. We like to call it a safe store of wealth rather than just investment. And also building legacies for their children, which is something that we see more and more. And then we build a collection that will align with these very personal objectives. We also think it's very important that people actually plan their collection up front and that they plan it properly. We've seen countless people coming to us who've been buying wines for years and they have no idea what they've got or even if it's any good. A lot of the time, it's a real mix of good stuff and more debatable choices, but it's all a bit random. A person might love burgundy and very light and fine wines and more feminine kind of wines, but they have a ton of super Tuscans out there because they just like the emails that they got from the merchants at the time that they received them. They had a bonus maybe and they overbought. So in most cases, when we drill down with our client, what we find is that people really want is optionality, this flexibility to decide at a later time whether they will drink or they will sell their wine, so at least some of it. And that's a real beauty, and it's the unique nature of fine wine that you can get this guilty pleasure, if you wish, in retail therapy of buying something that is absolutely amazing and unique. You can own it, and you can be able to sell it a profit. So when your partner asks you why you've been buying so much wine, you can always say, hey, look, I'm just investing here. <laughs> but you said you're not a retailer, so you don't actually sell the wine? No. So they buy it direct from some other negotiant or something like that? We buy the wine from the negociant ourselves to then allocate to our clients, but we are not a retailer in the sense that we don't sell to the public. I see. Ah, okay. Basically, we'll work with the client, we'll design the collection, and we will then go out and we will source those wines through all of our direct relationships from the estates. And we will then pick it up direct from the estates and do the whole traceability back to our storage. So they have this fully traceable collection. But legally, you're a retailer. You buy the wine and then sell it to your clients. Yeah, that's sort of how the process works, I guess, in practice. We work with a system that is basically a discretionary mandate. 
And so basically, a collector is going to tell us what is the budget that they're projecting on the collection, where they want to go to, what they want to put into their collection today. And we work against this budget to make sure that we can build the collection that they want for whatever reasons and objectives that they have. And so we have a client account in which they deposit the funds and then we use these funds sort of as an asset manager, if you want, to make sure that we buy the right wines for each individual client. And then so are you charging an asset management fee or since you're the retailer, are you just making the retail margin on the wine? Our fees are very simple. Our collections, first of all, they start at 25,000 euro because we feel that's the minimum amount that you need to build a good foundational collection for any purpose. And for these collections, that could be between 25,000 euro and 100,000 euro, we would charge only an annual management fee of 2%. And that would cover all the costs that are associated with it. So sourcing, the transportation, the storage, the insurance at full replacement value, and all our internet of bottle technology and the use of the mobile app. For collectors that are at 100,000 euro and above, we also charge a one-off advisory fee of 4,000 euro because these are much more time-consuming to assemble. But we're not merchants, we are advisors. That's what we do. So this fee is more than offset by future purchases and performance. And the management fee that we would charge in the case of collectors beyond 100,000 is slightly reduced on a sliding scale between 1.4 and 1.8%. I think one of the things we're able to offer is the fact that we're sourcing these wines direct. We're able to get, in many cases, wines at attractive prices because we're cutting out middlemen. So we're able to offer our collectors fully traceable, basically ex-chateau provenance wines at good prices. We're not saying we're going to be significantly below the market, but you know, most of the time we're coming in near the lower end of the market, just simply because of virtue of the relationships that we have. And so that's unusual to be able to get access to that quality of stock and that fully traceable stock at those sorts of prices. But you're not passing through the money you pay to the chateau or negotiant. That's not the price of the client, right? There's still a margin. There is a margin. The way it works is we want to try and come in, as I said, sort of towards the lower end of the market, wherever that's physically possible. That isn't always possible because especially when you're dealing with back vintages, if we're getting wines that are 10, 15 years old from the chateaus, it's pretty hard to compete with non-traceable stock that's in the market, but we do our best, even in situations like that. Right. A recent Decanter article noted that you have around 15 million euros in wine assets. Where are you seeing the most growth in your client base? I mean, it's actually a bit more than that now. What we've found recently is that people still want the optionality, and it goes back to this point. Almost everyone we speak to wants that optionality, even if they realize it or not. They want the ability to own these wines, either for drinking or for investment. But I think what we've seen recently is that the emphasis has been a little bit more on the store of wealth side of things. And there are good reasons for that, because we're at a time where asset prices across the board are very high, and people are looking to diversify their assets and their portfolios, and they want to hedge against inflation as well. Obviously, that's more of a theme, and we're seeing more of that. But you know, we're also seeing interest in the climate change theme, interestingly. And I think the reason for that is that people are realizing that the wines that are being made today, these are probably the greatest wines ever made because of technological advances and winemaking skills, but they're changing and they could potentially be transformed completely at some point in the future. And so there are people who want to be able to capture these wines now and to preserve them perfectly for their children for 10, 20 years into the future so their children can experience them themselves. But I think also, again, it comes back to the optionality. If these wines become increasingly rare and valuable due to climate change, then obviously having fully traceable collections of these wines is going to be valuable to the owners. So that's where we're seeing the growth at the moment. 
Got it. A lot of great information about wine storage and provenance and how you guys are changing the model for some astute collectors. What are you most excited about in the world of wine in the coming year? Look, it's been a tough year for many winemakers, right? You had the fires in Napa, you had the frost and floods all over Europe. Yet, there were some incredible wines that were being made from everywhere. And also from under the radar producers, both in the traditional place like Italy, Spain, France, but also markets like Germany, Switzerland. And the quality has been improving everywhere. And it's currently, I think, Jeb Dunnick mentioned that in the podcast he had with you. It's, it's currently like an Eldorado here for wine lovers. So what I find most exciting is that people are really starting to realize that wine is such a unique and fantastic asset to own. It has this optionality to create unique moments and being a store of wealth. But at its heart, it's bottled happiness that hopefully someone is going to share with friends It's and conviviality. It has tasty returns, yes, but we've seen during the COVID episode that wine has become a friend to many. And it's one of the few pleasures that were left and people really and truly valued having their collections close to them. So there's a growing realization of this and I think the market will keep expanding. You talked in previous episodes that the price will keep going up and I agree because this market is very dynamic, it's expanding. It's giving more options to more people at all price points. I think what needs to be celebrated and what I'm probably the most excited is that this industry is not shrinking or plateauing anytime soon. It has its own issues, that's true, and we're addressing some of them, hopefully. But it's a vibrant industry. It's full of energy. There's plenty of fresh talent. Many female winemakers, we don't have a chance to talk about them, but many of them I highly regard and we work close to them. I'm highly optimistic about the industry. There's plenty of energy, young generation. Some of them are tackling the organic theme with all their might and passion. And this is an industry that never rests. It remains fresh, current, vibrant, and we're so happy to be a part of it. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you both for joining us in talking about these topics. It's definitely an area that is not often talked about. And as you said earlier, it's not always the sexiest dinner table wine party conversation, but that's why we made this podcast. We want to thank you, Denny and Eric, for joining us and talking about these topics under the hood that is that actually are real problems in the wine industry. Thank you for joining us. Peter, Robert, thank you again for having us. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.